documented. Miracles happening today. Hey, welcome back to another week with Documented. I'm here with a very, very special person. She's one of my favorite people of all time, Andrea Sanchez, formerly known as Andrea Aragon. And I'm super, super excited. I say that a lot, but I'm really excited to get her testimony today and also some of her stories from her time living on the reservation. And so live and in person, we have Andrea Sanchez. Can you start by just kind of giving us a background of who you are for people who've never met you and just kind of tell us how Jesus touched your life? I grew up in Chinle, Arizona. Um, My dad was a pastor or is a pastor on the Navajo Reservation. Uh, We moved there when I was in first grade. So the majority of my life I lived on the Navajo Nation. Um, I have very little memories from before that time. So if someone has never been to the reservation at all, can you give us kind of an idea of what's the population of the town you're in? Uh, Chinle has a population of 5,000 in a 30 mile radius. So that includes all of the little towns that surround it. For the majority of my life, our town had one stoplight. To give give you an idea of how big it, it was, literally one stoplight. One primary, one elementary, one high school, one everything. So one of those towns where everybody knows everybody and everybody knew my dad. My dad was pastor, the pastor of the the community pastor. So everybody knew that I was the pastor's daughter. What kind of things was he doing? What would a day in the life look like for him or your mom or you guys? My dad served all day, every day. Is still serving all day, every day. <laughs> and it's... What do you mean by serve? What is he doing? Like he gives his life to serve the people in any way that they need help. Whether he's praying for the sick, visiting the elderly, he's visiting family in the hospital. He's working with, at the time he worked with so many youth, so many youth. I think like the percentage of broken homes on the reservation is like over 80%. The nuclear family on the res is nearly non-existent. So lots and lots and lots of broken kids, broken people. And I don't know why, but for some reason on the res, death is so commonplace. So there's only one high school in Chinle. In the four years that I was in high school, I think 12 students died. Wow. 12 students. And How in this, big was your entire high school? A thousand people. Wow. So you knew everybody. You... Like, I knew all of those people. Like, it's small. It's a small school. And so a lot of his ministry is helping people deal with that, deal with loss, in addition to preaching the gospel and building a church and outreaching the city. He was a servant to the community. He served his community, literally poured out his life for the community, spent lots of time. I mean, even to the point of... I can't even tell you how many people we had lived with us. Wow. Tons. So you actually let people in the home too? Yes. Wow. We had tons of people come live in our home for one reason or another, whether they their parents kicked them out, maybe because they got saved and gave their life to Jesus and they didn't weren't happy about it. We had lots of people in and out of our homes. I grew up there. I stayed there until I was almost 28 when I got married. How was that everybody knowing that you were the pastor's daughter? Did that come with a lot of pressure, expectations? It did. It came with a lot of expectations. I'm sure a lot of pastor's kids can understand the feeling that people expect you to be perfect just because you're a pastor's child. That definitely played a part, but I didn't actually mind it. Like I didn't have a problem with like growing up. I didn't mind being known as the pastor's kid or the pastor's daughter. And also in the town that we were in, there were very few non-natives. I think like in my entire high school, I think there were, I think like five non-natives. It was very, very few. There was like just very few non-natives. So everybody knew me as a little Mexican girl that was a pastor's kid. 
but I didn't really have a problem with it. I you kind of just embraced that yeah. you were different. Yeah, I embraced it. I felt like in a way it kind of, it made it really hard to have a secret life or even to desire a secret life. It made it nearly impossible. So I sure. feel like it it um, sheltered me a lot. Everybody knew me, so it was, I wasn't going to go. If you wanted to have like a little fling or boyfriend on the side, you knew that wouldn't fly. Oh, yeah. There's no way. There's no way. Everybody would know. <laughs> so I feel like it kind of kept me, you know, out of trouble. So, yeah, I grew up there, stayed there until I was tw- almost 28. Like right before I turned 28, I got married, moved away, moved to California. And I have been living here in California for almost nine years. Okay, so tell me a little bit about growing up and and just your encounters with God. I mean, I went to church three times a week. I was involved in, I did children's church. I sang on stage. I was in the choir. I went on outreach. I basically, everything our fellowship does, I did that. I did it happily. I was, that was my lifestyle, but that's all it was to me. I didn't realize it until down the road, but literally I was a Christian because of that was my lifestyle. That was my parents' lifestyle. And that's... Like that's just, your peer group. That was who you hung around. That was who, yeah. That, that was, was your life. Yes. Because, and at the time we had so many um, young people in school. So like all of my, a lot of them, the majority of my friends in school were all from church. So what would you say at that time uh, when you were making, deciding to make right decisions, what would you say was the motivation? If, if that relationship with Christ wasn't there, what would you say was the motivating factor behind the good things you did? I guess that's just all I knew. It was all I knew. I did wasn't exposed to that much because we didn't have a TV and the reservation is literally behind in the times. Like we, nobody had cell phones in school. Nobody had computers. Nobody had, like we had computers at school, but we hard, we didn't get on them a lot. The internet wasn't a big thing back then. So I didn't have a lot of worldly influences and that was just all I knew. So I just did it because that was just normal to me. Got it. For me, it was normal to go to church three times a week. It was normal to teach children's church. And and if you would have asked me, I would have said I was saved. I would have, I thought I was saved. What made you realize you weren't saved? Um, It wasn't until my brother died. When my brother died, I realized like everything about Jesus that I knew was all just head knowledge. All it was, was I knew all the Bible stories. I knew... I could tell you all about who Jesus was as a person, but I had no relationship with him. It would be equivalent to somebody reading tons and tons of books about Adolf Hitler, but they weren't alive at that time. They didn't know him personally. It was it was when my brother died and my life began to fall apart that I realized like I have no idea who this who Jesus is. He's nobody to me. He's a person from a book. I know all about him, but He's not my savior. He's not my Lord. He's has no place in my heart. I've never, I've never given my life to him. And I think a lot of church people, a lot of church kids, they go through this and they don't even realize it. So many people in the world, they come to Jesus because their life is empty. They have a jacked up family. They see so many things. They're part of this world that's so messy and nasty. I had the privilege of growing up with two amazing parents who loved me in a family that was amazing. It was almost like there was not a need for a God. Wow. It I didn't realize it then, but looking back, that was my problem. I didn't think I need I didn't need it. I was I had a good life. It wasn't until that was stripped away that I realized like I need a savior. Like by myself, I was gonna lose my mind. At the time that you lost your brother, were you involved in ministry? Yes. And so if someone would have been like, anybody around you would have said Andrea is saved. Yes. I thought I was saved. Wow. I thought I was saved. So walk me through that revelation a little bit more. What was it about your brother's death that made you realize that that it was empty? In my mind, because I was a good person, I thought I was saved. It was like I equated the lack of sin or the lack of, I mean, everybody's born a sinner, but I wasn't involved in blatant sin. I equated that to being saved. Now, as a more mature Christian, I realize like that's not what makes you saved. Just because you don't do bad things and just because you go to church doesn't make, 
doesn't mean that you're saved. Yeah, there's a lot of good moral <clears throat> people in the world that aren't saved. Yes. So I remember when my brother died, the hardest, hardest thing for me was watching my parents. Well, I remember watching my dad cry. I never saw my dad cry growing up. But when my dad cried, I would see him break just in hard moments as we're processing the loss of my brother. Man, it killed me. I just remember watching my dad cry and feeling like my world was falling apart. So right before my brother died, right before Jason died, so I was 17 at the time, Jason was 18. And we... I didn't realize you guys were that close in age. Yes, we were very close in age. Wow. 14 months or something like that. Um, okay, so Jason had Jason was 18, I was 17, and we had an invasion team going to Fiji. Um, for those of people who didn't know my brother, which probably majority of people, those people who didn't know my brother, my brother was very, he was not a people person. He was an introvert, an introvert very, very smart. He was one of the smartest people I knew. I knew. He was naturally smart. He was very smart. And one thing I really remember about him was he hated seeing my parents struggle. He would always say things like, if God is real and you guys give your life for his kingdom, why do you guys struggle so much? I never want to struggle like that. And the struggle was financial? Financial. It was just, yeah, financial. It was just, there was a, growing up on the reservation, there was a lot of like, just like demonic stuff, witchcraft and assaults. Yeah, just growing up in a, a place like Chinle where there's false religion and their native thing is like, I mean, it's so rampant. But yeah, a huge part of it was financial. Um, so he would always say, I'm, I'm never going to, I'm never going to be like that. And he would always try to understand God. So that was his biggest issue was he could never understand God. He couldn't understand why things were the way they were. If God is so good, then why are things the way they are? So that was Jason. And then like, he was just very, a very critical thinker, very smart, didn't have a very solid relationship with God. He was very, an introvert, didn't like people. He just didn't, wasn't into making friends. Like he had his two or three good friends and that was. Was your family really into people? Yes. Very, very. And my dad is like, I've never met anybody who loves people the way my dad loves people. Wow. So he's in this family where his dad is loving people. Yes. I know that Jason really struggled with, because there were so many young people on the res who were fatherless. Oh, wow. And so it's like my dad became the father to all of those boys. And they wanted to be just like my dad. And then you had my brother who... He wasn't just like your dad. No, he wasn't. It wasn't like my dad for like at all. It's very different. And it was a struggle. I mean, you're sharing your dad with the world, with the whole res. So that wasn't easy. That wasn't easy having to share him all the time. I remember, so we had an invasion team to go to Fiji. And I was going What's on the invasion, invasion team. Where our church would send a team of people. We pay our way to go to the Fiji Islands, to one of the churches there. And we go outreach and just witness and tell people about Jesus and go help that church out. So we were supposed to go. My dad was supposed to go preach a revival and he was taking a group with him and I was going on the group. And my dad got really sick right, right before we left. He got blood clots. And so my dad could not go. My dad could not go. And another pastor ended up going in his place, but the invasion team still went. So... We go on the invasion team, we leave, we come back right before July conference. So I remember the first thing, like a couple things that really stick out to me. I got home and my brother said, I remember it like it's yesterday, because <laughs> it like was, it just struck me. I, uh, he said, I watched Andy while you were gone. He slept with me. Andy was my dog. I had a little Yorkie at the time. My brother hate like did not like Andy. He was mean to Andy. Like he was not a dog person. Well, at least not my dog. And I remember thinking it was so weird. Like he was like, "Oh, Andrew, I watched Andy for you while you were gone. He slept with me." And I remember thinking like that's so weird. And then he was going to conference, which was so weird because I remember Jason would say stuff like, 
I don't want to go to 17th church services. Well, that, I don't want to go to listen to 17th sermons. Like, <laughs> he just saying stuff like that. And so I remember when they told me he was going to conference, I was like, what? Since when does Jason want to go to conference? Yeah. But that was that. So I didn't, like, we literally, it was like days. It was like right back to back. But those are two things that really stuck out to me that I just remember. So we go to conference. He's at conference. And this is when we're having conference in the big, huge, like, circus-style tents. Uh, so we go to conference. And I remember on Saturday morning after conference, we're in the hotel room. And I'm with my parents, my mom and dad, in the hotel room. And I remember the phone ringing. And... My dad answered the phone and you could tell immediately that something was wrong. I remember, I don't remember exactly what they said, but I remember knowing immediately that something was wrong and I could hear my dad like praying for Jason, like saying, I can't remember, like God, not my son. I remember him praying and it was about Jason and they didn't say what was going on they didn't tell me I just knew something was wrong and a couple from our church showed up at our hotel room and my parents said you're going to ride home with them Jason's been in a car accident and that's all they said they said Jason's been in a car accident and so they send me with the cloth she's and we're driving home and I remember we get to Flagstaff and that's when we get the news that my brother didn't make it. So we get to Flagstaff and they tell us to meet them at the morgue. And I was the first one there. We were the first ones there. And I'm just waiting there for my parents. And I remember them coming in. And I remember going in to see my brother and I remember we walked up to him and my dad started praying for him and it was it was then that I felt like my life was falling apart it was then from that moment when I watched my dad break like that I realized that God was not my rock. I didn't even know who Jesus was. My dad was my rock. My dad was everything to me. My dad is still everything to me, but he was who I ran to when things in my life got hard. He was Superman. He did everything. He was my rock. My parents, they were my Jesus. And I remember when I watched them after Jason died and things just got worse and worse. Everybody in my family was just, my family was hemorrhaging. Everybody was, obviously, everybody's grieving. Everybody's, and everybody grieves different. Everybody grieves different. So we're all in our own world. Everybody's in their own world. And I'm just watching my parents and it's just like killing me. I mean, it just like shook me to the core. And I, I didn't, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't see, handle seeing my parents not be in control. Like not, like to watch them fall apart, it was like shaking my world. And it was then that I realized like, oh my gosh. And people were, and then I remember watching, like hearing people talk about Jesus and God. And I was just, I was so angry. I was so angry in my 17 year old mind. I could not understand for the life of me why God would take my brother after all my parents had sacrificed. They had sacrificed everything, their lives to live in this disgusting little town. Like just to live like without just everyday necessities. And they had sacrificed everything for God's kingdom. And this is, this was, this is like how he repaid them. 
Like this was, I couldn't, I was so angry. And some people deal with grief, they cry. Like I remember my mom crying every single day. Every day I would wake up and I would hear her crying. Me, I got angry. I got angry. I didn't cry. I just was angry. I just hated people. I hated being around people. I hated when I would see people living normal lives. Like it would make me so mad to see other people moving on. And it would just make me mad. Like, do you understand my life is falling apart? Like we're falling apart and you're just, it's a month later and you're just going on with life. I was just so angry. I was just an angry, angry kid. I remember in high school, it was so bad that they said I needed to go to anger management counseling my senior year. Oh my God. So they tried to tell me to go to anger management. Tell me, give me, give me an idea of, of how the anger manifested. <laughs> I just hated people. I just didn't like people. Was... And I remember being the most mean to the people that I loved the most. Wow. Like, I remember being really mean to Chris, my brother-in-law. At the time, he wasn't my brother-in-law. He was just a guy in the church, but he took care of us. Like, my mom was, like, living on another planet, which I understand. That was her. I mean, she just lost her son. But Chris was the one that would come to our house every morning and make sure we got to school. He would pick us up from school. He would call us and make sure that we have you guys eaten. After school, he would take us to go get food before taking us home. He just was there for us. He just made sure that he knew that my parents were a mess. He was just making sure me and Lauren were being taken care of. And I remember like being really awful to him. Like I couldn't control my tongue. Like I was just mean with my tongue. And I just didn't, I hated people. It just made me hate people. And it wasn't because of people. I was just jacked up inside. I was, I, that was my way of grieving. I was just angry. I, I was angry at God. I didn't understand. And at the same time, I'm realizing like, I don't even know who God is. I'm just, I was just really, really lost. Was really lost and in my anger. And my parents were grieving themselves. So they, they didn't notice. They didn't, it's not like they were watching this and not doing anything about it. They, they were trying to, they were trying to deal with their own grief. During this time, were you still attending church? Yes. So yeah. how, what did a service feel like in this state of, in other words, you know, you're, you're going to church and you're battling anger. You're not into people. You get both of those things at church. So how, how are you hanging in the church service? I just, it was, I was dead inside. I went, but I was just, I felt nothing. I just was like a zombie. Like I remember just, I remember like my friends would want to hang out after church or they would want to go or come over. And I just didn't want to be around people. We would go straight to church right after we would leave. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to fellowship. I didn't want to have anything to do with nobody. I was just in my own little bubble, just day by day trying to survive. So how long did this go on for? It went on for, I want to say about seven or eight months is when it finally registered. Like it took me that long to realize like what was lacking was a real relationship with Jesus. That's why I was so jacked up. What made you realize it? God began to bring peace to like my dad. I remember watching like healing slowly start and I felt like I was getting worse. And it was then that I was like, I, I just realized like, I didn't know who God was. I could tell you all about him, but who he was to me, there was nothing. He was nobody to me. And that's when I said, I want that. I want that relationship. I want the peace that I tell people about and the love that I can tell people about and all of this brain knowledge that I knew. I knew it. I don't understand why it took me so long to figure it out. I didn't, I didn't experience it. I did not experience it for myself. And I decided like, I want that. I want that. I want to experience it. I don't want to just know it. I don't want to just talk about it, but I want to experience. I want to feel it. 
I want to know that all of that stuff that I've read in the Bible and teach kids and yada, yada, yada. I want that for my own life. And that's when I gave my life to Jesus for reals. I was more than just a good person. I didn't want to be just a good person. I wanted Jesus to be my savior. And I needed him. Like at that time, I was, I was getting worse. I was just becoming more and more angry. At this time, I still wasn't dealing with the grief. I hated crying. I hated it. Like I did not like to cry. But because I wasn't dealing with those emotions, it was manifesting in other ways. I was becoming just an angry, awful person because I refused to deal with my grief. And I could feel myself getting worse and worse. I remember thinking like, who am I? How did I become this person? Hmm. Before my brother died, I was such a people person. I loved people. I'm my father's daughter. <laughs> like I loved people. I loved having friends. I loved being friends. I just, I loved people. And when I began to change and I couldn't stop it, no matter what I did, I couldn't stop it. And I remember looking at myself and thinking, how did I become this way? Like, how did I become so angry? And I, my tongue was like a sword. I would just kill people with my tongue. And I did not like who I was becoming and I could not stop it. And then I finally realized, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe I should get saved, give my life to Jesus for reals. And that's what I did. Do you remember when that was? Was it on your own that you prayed or did you pray with someone? No, I just prayed on my own. I just remember being in my room and praying. What and did saying, you say? I said, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know you the way my dad knows you and the way my mom knows you. I don't want to know about you. I want to know you. And I want you to save me. I need a savior. And I repent all these years of just being a good person and thinking that that was enough. And that's when I finally gave my life to Jesus. And I remember a peace. I remember feeling peace like... He was helping me carry my burden. But one thing that I had a really hard time shaking was the depression. Like I had this like overwhelming darkness, just like a depression, just like sadness. Even though I had gotten saved and given my life to Jesus and I wanted to pursue that relationship with him, I couldn't shake that like dark sadness over my life. And I remember I would pray about it and I'd be like, God, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to feel so sad all the time. I don't want to feel like this. I want to be happy again. And I distinctly remember one day I'm in prayer and this was like about a year after Jason died. It's been a year. I'm sitting in prayer and I'm just praying like, God, you've saved me, but I, I'm so, I have no joy. And at this time, my mom is still really, really struggling. Like my family at home is still really struggling with the loss. It's still pretty bad. I wanted to feel joy again. Like I wanted, and our, our, our family and our home was so happy before. Like we just had a happy home. Like we just, our home was a happy place. So to drastically change overnight was, it was traumatizing. Mm. And I was craving that again. I was craving just some sense of happiness. And I remember being in prayer and God told me to stop focusing on myself and invest in somebody else. To invest in, invest in a sinner, invest in a new convert. Stop looking only at my pain but to invest in somebody. And so I did. I remember there was a girl that had just gotten saved and she was like this antisocial girl that did not talk. So I decided I'm going to befriend her. And I became her friend and that's what healed me. That's what healed the overwhelming sadness is when I began to pour my life into somebody else and invest in somebody else. I feel like that is that was one of the turning points that I distinctly remember where God really began to bring healing. 
And even though I was helping her, trying to help her serve God, God was using that to heal me as well. And I began to heal from that. After you got saved and you really surrendered to God, what was the biggest changes that you saw? Did he ever help you process your brother's death? Yes. After I got saved, it took me a long time to process my brother's death just because it was a very, very painful to think about it. By this time, Jason had already been gone a year and I had made him, made an art of avoiding it. I would not think about it. I remember like when the thoughts would try to come into my mind, like I'd be doing, you know, whatever and memories of the, Jay, the day Jason died would come into my mind and I would do everything possible to redirect my thoughts. I just didn't want to think about it because it was so painful. And for a couple years I did that, but I knew that it was not healthy. I knew that it was not healthy and I still hadn't really like, I hadn't, I don't want to say I hadn't forgiven God, but I hadn't like, I still questioned God a lot and not in a good attitude, but I still kind of blamed God or I was kind of like a how could you attitude. Mm -hmm. I still had that. Even though I had given my life to Jesus, that didn't go away. I still had the thought of how could you, why would you, why? And it took me a long time to finally begin to process it. But I finally began to let my mind go there. I would purposefully, like I remember the first time I was home alone. I think my dad was out preaching somewhere. I don't know, for some reason I was home alone. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna think about it. I like made the conscious decision. Because I fought it so much. I remember sitting there and I knew it was not good that I hadn't processed it. That it was still like this like issue in my mind. And so I remember sitting there and thinking, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to relive that day. And it was rough. The first time I did that, it was really, really hard. It was like it had just happened. I could remember every single detail of that day it was so vivid in my mind but when I decided to do that I feel like that is when God was able to not only heal it but I could see God's hand in it even though that sounds so weird like to think that God had a hand in my brother's death now hindsight I know this sounds really strange, but I thank God that he took my brother at that time. And I think it was God's gift to my parents for their faithfulness. I really do believe that. My brother struggled with his relationship with God. He struggled, struggled, struggled. He did not understand God. He And he wanted to understand God. He wanted to... He thought that he could understand God. And because he couldn't, he just struggled. He really, really struggled with having a relationship with God. And he was getting away. He was getting ready to move away to the city. So you spend all your life growing up in this little town where you're you're protected from the world, kind of, in a way. I feel like I was protected. And growing up on the reservation, I am so thankful that I grew up there. Most people go there and think, I would never live here. <laughs> Even to this day, I go down that hill to Chinle, and all I can think is, I'm home. Like, that is home to me. And I am never ashamed to say that I grew up in Chinle. I'm so, I feel like it salvaged me so much because I wasn't... Chinle is, like, behind in the times. <laughs> it's, like, 10 years behind. <laughs> So I just, I felt like I stayed young for a really long time. I just, I loved growing up there. I wish I could raise my children there. <laughs> so anyway, so that's... I mean, it's just like San Francisco, but different, right? <laughs> exactly. It's exactly the same, but different. <laughs> that's what the Reds would say. So Jason was, he also grew up in that, mm -hmm. in a place where you can't go do what you want. Everybody knows your pastor already son. You can't just go do what you want. 
but he was getting ready to move to Texas where he could do whatever he wanted. Mm. And I remember that we were, my parents were kind of worried. They were worried. Mm-hmm. If he's having a hard time serving God in Shen Li with hardly any distractions or temptations, how is he ever going to survive moving to the city? And what I didn't know, my father failed to tell me, tell us, <laughs> that my brother had a radical conversion while we were in Fiji. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about it until my dad was preaching somewhere and we were with him and he preached about it. No. Yes. I remember, I think we were in like Desert Hot Springs, somewhere in like California. And I'm like, What? what why how come i don't know this wow (laughs) so 10 days before jason died 10 days he went to my dad apparently confessed for i don't know what i don't know what he did and told told my dad i want to be saved i want to get saved and my dad prayed for him and that's why he randomly was watching my dog because he, he got saved. <laughs> like, he just got a heart. He got saved. Andrew's still praying for me. <laughs> and then he went to and conference. He wanted to get a conference. Yeah. yeah. But God mm. saved him. Yeah. And then at his highest point, he took him. Wow. My parents, I know that's my parents' greatest prayer. They don't care who we become. All they care about is that their children make it to heaven. Make it to heaven. Yeah. And they've already, they're one in four. They got one there. Wow. And so I truly believe that. Wow. But at that moment, like back then, I would have never, ever. I was mm-hmm. too blinded by my anger. By yes, exactly. Life. And until I dealt with it, I couldn't see God's hand in it. And not only that, but God also used it to draw you yes. to an actual relationship with him. Yes. Wow. And so what, just, just, what changed? Because not a whole lot changed as far as your, your behavior and your faithless church, I'm sure your involvement. What what felt different after you felt like you had a relationship with God? The meaning behind it all. Why I did it. It wasn't just, this is my lifestyle. This isn't, it was now a choice. This is who I want to be. This is not what I do, but this is who I am. That's when my salvation became my identity. It like literally... Like, if somebody is to ask me who I am, like, the fact that I am saved and I'm a child of God is, like, the first thing that defines me. And that's what happened when I gave my life to Jesus. It's not, oh, I go to church and I'm a Christian or whatever. No, I am saved. I am saved by the blood of Jesus. That became my identity. And it began to bleed into... I think it gave me a love for people also. And it gave me a passion to help people who were broken. Like it, like when you've been through that kind of pain and then you hear about it, like even to this day, if I hear about somebody who's lost somebody, I can, I know what that feels like. It never goes away. It never, ever goes away. That feeling of that, of how it feels. So I look, when I hear about it, I, I'm like taken back to that day like that. And I think, oh, the compassion there that, yes. that you didn't understand yes. before. Yes. And my heart breaks. And then I realize mm-hmm. like, oh, and then you want them to know Jesus because I remember what it was like trying to handle that mm-hmm. as just a young kid trying to, pro- I, man, it kills me. I think about what it was like for my family and we had Jesus. And I think, how does anybody survive this kind of thing without Jesus? It was so hard and like life altering and we knew like my parents my dad was a pastor like it was jesus played a huge role in our life and it was killer so it like it's very i have a lot of compassion for people who are going through that and don't know jesus and i always think man if they could just meet jesus know jesus like he can it does get better well it gets better there's hope so you said something earlier that was really interesting. You said that you didn't even really know you weren't saved mm-hmm. until the world fell out underneath your feet and he wasn't there, mm-hmm. right? Like you realized it was empty. Mm-hmm. So if there's anyone listening and maybe they are in similar shoes where they grew up going to church or they have a lot of knowledge about Christ in their mind, 
what do you say to them as far as them testing or like knowing or having that confidence, that assurance of salvation? What would you say to someone like that as far as, as far as what God can do in their life and, and, and them kind of knowing whether they're right with God? I think the question that would have triggered me to think of that is if somebody would have asked me, who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Not who does the Bible say he is, but who is he in your life? Because I would not have had an answer to that. I wouldn't really have known what to say to that because he didn't really, I didn't really have an I didn't have an answer for that. I didn't, everything I knew was just stories, who he is, what the Bible says about him, scriptures, but who he is to me. Most people, when you're really saved and you say, who is Jesus to you? You can say, you can talk about the time that Jesus touched you. You remember. Mm-hmm the encounter that you had with Jesus. If you can't remember an encounter that you had with Jesus, then you might be like I was, just a good person who goes to church and just does good things, but there's no relationship with Jesus. And I think about it and I, like my prayer, I mean, I prayed, it was, but it was very like, it was all routine. Everything I did was because that's just what I did knew how to do well it's just like what i knew we go to church we sit in the prayer room we god i pray for my unsaved family that you would get them saved it was all just outward acts but i never sat there and like touched heaven where i was like in my own prayer where i'm really touching god that I didn't even think about that. It oh. was all just outward action. And it wasn't even that I was like this awful person inside. I wasn't. I thought I knew God. So you you knew that Jesus was real this whole time? Yes. So you knew God was real. You didn't question that. It was just he, you didn't have a personal relationship with him. Yes. Okay. So what was one of the craziest demonic situations you ever saw as a kid on the reservation? I remember one time we were having this like burning party at the church where I remember my dad would do a sermon on like, or preach a sermon about um, idolatry and like open doors to the devil, to witchcraft, especially because on the reservation, idolatry is rampant 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 they're really into like ceremonial stuff and so it's a huge open door so i remember we were having he and so he would preach a sermon and and everybody would come to church and bring all their like paraphernalia all their whatever they felt like was could be a stronghold in their life and i remember this guy brought a big i think she was a mary a mary statue and it would not burn. And it was it was like a ceramic or it was so they threw it so we would build a huge fire and everybody would throw their stuff in. And people are throwing in music, they're throwing in like bongs, they're throwing in um, posters, clothes, they're throwing in like their native stuff, like whether it be like their feathers or dream catchers or whatever. Anyway, so everybody's throwing it in. So I remember this guy brought a I think it was Mary, like a Mary statue. And he like threw it and it wouldn't burn. So then he decides to break it and it would not break. It would not break. Holy and it was like cow. ceramic. It wasn't like, and it was hollow. Ceramic? Yeah. Like, like dollar store ceramic? Not little... like dollar store, but it was, it was ceramic. Like it wasn't, and it was hollow. So it should break super easy. Wow. Right. So, and here, I remember they're trying oh, to break it, trying God. to break it. It will not break. So okay. finally they go get one of those big, um, center blocks. Okay. Okay. They get a center block and they drop it on top of the Mary. It busts open and there's like a demonic looking statue inside it. Like it was just like demonic looking like devil statue. And we were like inside inside the the statue. Yes. Inside the Mary statue. Ew. I know. It was so demonic. It was so weird. Was, it was so weird. And then what did they do? 
did they crush that one? Yeah, like, yeah, they, yeah, they crushed it. <laughs> oh but like, gosh. it was freaky. But, like, it was, it was like, weird that that was even in there. Well, it was weird that it wouldn't break. Everybody was like, "Why would yeah. this break?" We're yeah. literally like, it would have like it's it's something that if it was to fall off the table, it would break. Wow. So the fact that we're like trying to destroy so... it and it just refused to break, and then it breaks open, and then there's like another that absolutely has nothing to do with Mary. Yeah. Inside it. Whoa. Yeah, that was weird. And I remember one time my parents had this like Asian table in their room, in their house, this like coffee table. And it had these like, it was all like engraved. Okay. Yeah, engraved. Anyway, engravings all over the table. Somebody told them, a friend of my dad's told him that I needed to be, that it was demonic, I need to get rid of it. And I remember my parents weren't like, they didn't really want to get rid of it. It was like expensive. It was really sure. beautiful. And it had sure. like these Chinese or Asian fake ladies okay. in it. And it had glass over it. It was beautiful. And it had all this, it was made out of like opal and like beautiful stones. I don't know the whole story. I don't know why. I don't remember how long. But my, my parents finally decided to get rid of it. So we take it to the front yard and we're going to burn it. And for me, I'm me and my brother, we're little. All we care about is we're going to have a bonfire. We're like, yeah, yeah, Where's bonfire. The s'mores? No. Yeah, exactly. And that table refused to burn. Oh, gosh. I mean, they're putting gas on it, and it won't burn. And it's Whoa. wood. It's made out of wood. Whoa. So it should burn. Whoa. But it's made out of wood, and it won't burn. And so then my dad finally prays, and, was, and like, then it finally burns. And I was like, yikes, that's oh my so gosh. demonic. Yeah. All right, so you're living on the East Coast. You hear these crazy stories about Native Americans. Are skinwalkers real? What are they? Who are they? Okay, so natives believe, or Navajos believe, that skinwalkers are people who have the power to shapeshift. Shapeshift. Is that the right word? Shapeshift. Animorph. I'm just kidding. Yeah, animorph. The book. I used to read those. <laughs> Me and Jason. <laughs> and they didn't burn. <laughs> yes, and so they believe that they can shapeshift and become animals and do run around at night and... Do I believe they're real? I believe that there's a demon. I mean, there's a, yes, a, like a demonic. Okay, do I believe that what they believe about skinwalkers is real? No. I don't believe that people have the power to shapeshift. Sure. But I do believe that the demonic world plays a part in that. I believe that their false religion has opened doors to demonic activity. Sure. And that's their way of explaining it. That they're skinwalkers. So maybe there's like a possession of some sort that gives them demonic power to do something like run as fast as a cheetah yeah okay or that they're demons yeah that they think are people okay i've never met anybody who says that they're a skinwalker and they've been able to prove it or any i've never actually met anybody who says they're a skinwalker like if somebody has the ability to shapeshift like who's that somebody there has to be so i think they're demons do you ever see one no i never saw one but so i mean so one of my friends swears up and down he has so <laughs> and i'm just I, to me i would i just say they're demons yeah. Those are demons. I don't believe that Native Americans have some special... All other gods are false. There sure. are no other gods. There is only God. There's only Jesus. So I think everything else is demonic activity that you open up the door to with idolatry and all the stuff that they're involved in. Do you believe that demon possession is real? Absolutely. Why is that? Because I saw it. What did you see? So I remember one one that i remember very distinctly is it was like three in the morning and this was when i was older i was probably like in my early 20s and my bedroom wall connected with our living room wall and my bed was against that wall so i remember it was like three in the morning and there's like pounding on the door and that would always freak me out because you just never know people are crazy yeah three in the morning pounding on the yeah, door yeah i mean not that that wasn't that odd for our house or for our home or for Why is that? Because that's kind of stuff that just happened all the time. People come over at three in the morning? Yeah, all the time. Like, just crazy people. So anyway. For what? Counseling? Faster. I need counseling. I need this. I don't you know. are kidding me. <laughs> no. No, I'm not kidding you. Like, just being there, the phone calls you get. Oh, like, gosh. Like, so-and-so just hung himself. I have to go. I need to go yeah. back for the family. Or... Have to commit. Like, it was just like... Is this okay, real? okay. Suicide? Okay, we should talk about suicide, because suicide is like... So, so, 
I mean, getting a phone call in the middle of that is a lot. Was he getting phone calls too? Oh, all the time. My dad's phone never stopped ringing. And so Wait, hold what, on. What were they My dad's for? phone never stops ringing because it's the same today. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so who's calling him? What it, what's, what's, what is he taking care of at 3 in the morning? That's insane. Office hours are 8 to 5. That's not, that wasn't his life. Master already doesn't have office hours. Mm. I don't think he knows what that means. It's just everybody counseling. Like, counseling whether sometimes there's somebody died, somebody deaths. One of the main causes of death on the res is car accidents because of the open range. There's animals everywhere. Oh, wow. And it's so dark out there. It's so dark. There's no street lights. Death was rampant, rampant, rampant out there. I didn't realize how abnormal it was until I moved away. It's not normal. Like, I, I mean, aside from my brother's death, I have experienced death so many times. Like, tons and tons. And then the longer I lived off the res, I realized how not normal that was. Wow. Like, death is just so commonplace there. Wow. So commonplace. Okay, so I think I, I got you off your story of, you were talking about someone, demon possession, oh, in yeah. the middle of the night, someone's pounding on the door. Someone's pounding on the door. And I look out the window, and I don't know who it is. And then I see him standing on the porch, and it's this guy, Leander. And Leander is, like, one of the guys that was kind of, like, in and out of church, he would come in and serve God and then backslide and come in and serve God. But he was a nice guy. He was nice. He loved my dad. And he was always nice to us. He was just a nice person. Even when he wasn't saved, like he wasn't this evil, awful person. And so I was like, what is, and I'm thinking, what does Leander want? And I look out and he walks in and he's by himself. There's people in his car. I remember he came with people. There's people in his car, but only he walked up and he walks in and my dad opens the door and I can hear them talking and it's not Leander's voice. That is not Leander. And he starts like cussing out my dad. Like just cussing and just like You say it's not Leander's voice. What do you what do you mean? It wasn't Leander. Like it was him. Was his mouth moving? Yeah. Oh yeah. His mouth was moving. Yeah, his mouth was moving. But a different voice is coming. Yeah. And it was he was saying things that Leander would never say. Like he was just It was so out of character for this guy. Yes. Yeah. And so I remember like walking, like looking in, because so our, so they're in the dining room and I walk out of my bedroom into the uh, family room and it has like a cutout in the wall where I can see into the dining room Mm -hmm. and I see them standing by the table. And this is so normal for my dad that he's just like, he's like half asleep. (laughs) He's like. I can't believe someone showing up, cussing him out is normal at three in the morning. Yeah, unfortunately, that's okay. not right, keep that going. far-fetched. I mean, it's not that strange. So I'm just watching, and I'm just like, he has got demons. Like, he is demon-possessed. And so my dad's talking to him, and he's asking him, like, Lando, what do you need? And he doesn't really need anything. He's just there to torment my dad. He's just there cussing out my dad. And my dad's just telling him, Leander, you need to, you need to get clean, get sober, and, and give your life back to God. And I remember he has alcohol with him. And he says, this is my God. And he takes a drink and then starts choking. Oh, my God. (laughs) Literally choking on his his God. And he's just like, he was psycho. He was so, it was a different person. And so then my dad's like, you need to leave. And he's just like choking. And my dad's like pushing him towards the door. And my dad is literally like half asleep. He's just like, I don't have time for this. You need to go. He like stumbles down the stairs and his friends come pick him up and drag him back to the car. Oh my God. And then he drive, they drive away. Wow. And then I remember we didn't see Leander. I remember Leander worked at one of the local restaurants. One of the, there's like literally two restaurants in town and he worked at one of them and he was just gone. He was just mm. gone. He was gone. We would ask about Leander and nobody knew. And come to find out he was, when his friends told him what happened, he was so ashamed. He was so ashamed that he did that. That he couldn't even, he didn't even know he did that. And so he like disappeared for months and months and months. So that's just one. I remember one guy in church was having, was possessed by demons and he was hopping around the 
the church parking lot like a frog. Like he's a grown man. He's a man. And he's hopping around the parking lot. There's the animal works right <laughs> You're there. Just like, yeah. I see a skinwalker. <laughs> There's a skinwalker right there. <laughs> yeah, I definitely believe in it. It's definitely wow. Wow. You were saying something about suicide? Suicide is, especially in young people, it's very, very common. The main and the main thing is hanging. They people kids hang themselves. Common. What is that in your opinion? I think it's I think it's just oppression. It's hopelessness, brokenness. Like every let me think if I I can only think of one friend in all my friends from high school. Well, two. Two friends that had a mom and a dad. That's heavy. None of them, they either lived with just their mom. Very few of them even knew their dad or he was not in the picture. And a lot of them were raised by their grandparents. The broken home is huge there. Everybody that comes from a broken home. Everybody. People had no idea what it meant to have a dad. So broken families are huge there. It's just hopelessness and oppression. And then you throw in like idolatry and false religion that offers no hope. Mm-hmm. And then you throw in drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Alcoholism is huge on the res. What is the main religion on the res? Um, just their Native American tradition. Like and, tradi- and, being and traditional. And serve in that? What is that about? They have like, I don't know how many gods they have. They have a lot of gods. I mean, they just have gods. They believe in God, gods. Mm-hmm. And they do ceremonies and they believe that they need to do all these ceremonial things to appease the gods to get them to do what they want. They have like, they have ceremonies if you want safety, ceremonies if you want to have kids. They want, they have ceremonies for protection. They have, everything's about a ceremony. So what kind of backlash did you face when you go in and you try to preach about the God of the Bible? Everybody says that's the white man's religion. That's what they've been taught. It's the white man's religion. How do you overcome that? I think what really overcame it is when you have someone who's that broken and they see either our lives or or even better, their own peers' life change. And you can talk all day about your God of whoever you serve, but if your life is still messed up, Mm -hmm. then it holds no weight. But to see, say, your cousin go and have a radical conversion and you see their life change, you couldn't argue it. And when you come from such a small town, when people started getting saved, everybody knew. Everybody knew about it. Like the person who's, I remember when a street drunk, I mean like a literal street drunk, like the guy who lives on the street and is passed out in front of the grocery store, peeing all over himself. We had one of those guys come in and get radically saved. So how do you argue that? How do you say that's the white man's religion? You can't. And it's funny because it's not always like this for every church, but in our in our community, the ch- the community loved the church. They liked our church. We didn't have a lot of people who hated the church. They may not come to our church or believe in what we believe or whatever, but there weren't a whole lot of people who hated it because we it helped the community. When people started, I remember when we would do parades, like in Chinle, the parades were huge. So our town had, I think the t- actual town of Chinle has between 2,500 and 3,000 people in the town, right? So when we would have a parade, we'd have like 6,000 people at the parade. They come out of the woodworks. Oh my goodness, from other areas. From all areas, yeah, to have this, our parade, our little town from one end to the other is probably two miles, three miles, maybe from one end of town to the other. So see all these people coming to town for like this three mile parade. 
Wow. But the, what we would do is, and we had tons of youth. So we would have a choir and we'd decorate this float and all the youth would be on the float and we'd be singing songs and giving testimonies. And then everybody else would be walking around the parade and just passing out flyers and we'd be passing out water. And if it was hot days, we'd pass out popsicles. And we had the announcers, the ones that were like basically for the radio station that we're seeing, like talking about each float that passed by. They're not saved. They're not even Christian. They're like traditional. They're who knows who they are. They're not saved. When our float would come up, they would say, if you have children who are messed up, send them to this church. We That's had, a powerful system. Yeah, we had amazing, and still have amazing mm-hmm. favor in our little town. Just because everybody knows that if you need help, like they will help you. They will, if you want, if you really want to get your life together, they will help you. That's where, if you want to get your life in order and on track and get off drugs and off alcohol, mm-hmm. the Potter's House will help you. And now it's documented.